Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will cover all things energy, so with that in mind, we are fortunate to have with us on the line today, a Jay Dobson, Energy and Utilities Analyst Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So Jay, welcome back. Thank you for dropping by Top of the Morning and looking forward to our conversation. Yes, Dan, thanks so much for having me. Always, always pleased to be on with you. Absolutely. So maybe to set the stage a bit, Jay, you think about 2022 has, of course, been a very challenging period for markets and investors have been faced with having to navigate volatile conditions across the broader marketplace. And this has resulted in investors looking more closely at companies with direct commodity exposure as a potential hedge to inflation. So, Jay, what are some considerations when it comes to, let's say, oil companies and other businesses with direct commodity exposure and what should participants be mindful of? Yeah, Dan, it's, it's an interesting question. So, you know, when we say a, a hedge to inflation, we're generally talking about, you know, businesses, securities, or in this case, commodities that perform well when inflation is, is rising or above trend. As, as you pointed out in your introduction, you know, I focus a lot on energy, but, you know, we can look across agricultural commodities right now, industrial raw materials, in, including um, some industrial metals, and see all of these are experiencing, you know, higher prices and, and, and showing the benefits of, of commodities, you know, as, as an inflation hedge or commodities performing well, you know, when inflation is elevated. Now, I think when you sort of say, well, why is that happening? You know, we can look at commodities and you know, generally, you know, we're seeing them impacted by a shortage of supply um, and rising demand. And, you know, as commodities, uh, you know, a little different than, than equities or or, or bonds, you know, are really uh, focused on the underlying supply and demand of, of the commodity, um, that, that's what's impacting prices. Um, and, you know, I think when you look at the forward market, a lot of people think of that, the futures market for commodities, as being a prediction of price. It's not really a prediction of price. It's, it's really the market trying to balance the future of supply and the future of demand on, you know, consensus expectations and, and, and set a price that is is sort of a clearing price uh, for people to to hedge there, but it's it's not by no means a a future forecast. If it was, we'd we'd know that the futures prices are is a really bad forecaster of, of future prices. Um, so I'd say generally, uh, what we think about is is companies you know have to with. Or companies that are commodity exposed, you know, really need to focus on, you know, the supply and demand outlook for the underlying commodity. So, you know, I always like to tell people, you know, we have to have a view on oil or and or natural gas, you know, being equity analysts in energy, because, you know, that's going to be a big part of, of what happens to, to energy equities. And I, I would say, you know, across all commodities, whether we are talking agricultural or energy commodities or others, you really have to have a view on supply and demand in order to have a view on, you know, an, an equity that uh, that has a lot of exposure to, to commodity prices. 
So, Jay, as a quick follow-up, does the Chief Investment Office have a view at this time on crude oil or gold? Yeah, I mean, CIO makes forecasts. We have a commodity-focused group. Um, they have uh, they have forecasts on, on most of the major commodities, you know, to take the two you offered. Obviously, uh, I spend a lot of time uh, with that commodity group, um, focusing and understanding, you know, the sort of outlook for, for crude oil. Uh, we have a year-end forecast of $112. Uh, U.S. for for West Texas Intermediate, um, and we actually have uh, I would view that as a, a somewhat constructive outlook, you know, given where prices are currently. Uh, I'd say it's a bit more balanced on gold, where we have an, an eighteen hundred dollar U.S. Uh, uh, price per ounce uh, at year end uh, twenty twenty two. But as I said, I think it's important when you're looking at commodity businesses, you have to have a view on the underlying commodity, and, and hence CIO has a has a view on a lot of those. Well, thank you, Jay, for some context and for some background on how to add commodity exposure to a portfolio. Of course, we do encourage our clients listening in to have a follow-up conversation with their financial advisor here at UBS if they would like to learn more. Though, pivoting a bit, Jay, energy security has certainly come into focus with the Russia-Ukraine war, which is sadly ongoing. So, can you discuss the intersection of energy security, energy affordability, and energy decarbonization? Yeah, Dan, I, I think this is probably one of the most uh, under-discussed under topics, um, you know, sort of in the, in the you know, sort of energy business today. You know, we wrote about this uh, more than a year ago. You know, back then we were talking about energy reliability. But I think, you know, we have to consider, you know, it is, as you point out, an intersection of reliability or security, affordability, and decarbonization. Um, and all of these three things are important. You especially when we consider that, you know, the global economy, essentially the lifeblood of the global economy is energy. Um, and, you know, we, we need only sort of each of us think about the last time sort of the lights went out during a storm to understand how easy it is to take sort of, you know, energy and, and energy supply for granted. Um, so, so reliability and security are, are really, really important. Now, you know, for, for folks that are listening, you know, this is not a desire on my part or others to, to minimize the importance of reducing carbon emissions. I, I think this is critical, and, and I would actually go further to say, you know, the last, you know, three or four years um, have really driven the energy industry to embrace this this change. Uh, it will take time, as, as we've pointed out, but I, I think uh, the energy industry is very, very focused on making sure that energy security or, or reliability of supply is there affordability is there and then obviously moving towards towards decarbonization you know as as fast as as reasonably possible uh, the one thing i do like to point out dan is is affordability isn't meant to be you know sort of cheap i don't i don't think that energy underlying and we're certainly feeling this all of us at the gas pump currently you know it's it's not that energy has to be cheap it's just it does have to be affordable there's there's a supply demand balance that you know if demand goes high enough that drives 
price is high enough, and then all of a sudden you do destroy demand. So I'm I'm thinking at affor- affordability as the level at which you know supply and demand can be reasonably balanced. Once we take into account you know reliability and then the the need to decarbonize. Now you mentioned the Russia-Ukraine war. You know that is, as you point out, a very very unfortunate development. Um, you know, just sitting here as a human being. But I think when you look at it, the challenge really was or is that you know. Russia is a very, very large global supplier of both oil, refined products, and and natural gas. Uh, I'd say at the margin, you know, we've probably been a little supri- surprised. You know, Russia exports have not declined uh, as much as we would have thought initially. Um, but I think that is very much still developing, and uh, we still see uh, the potential for additional downside in in oil production and exports from from Russia. So I, I think the bottom line I'd want to leave you with is. You know, energy security or the intersection of energy security, affordability, and, and the potential for decarbonization, quite frankly, is, is part of the reason we're, we're bullish on, on uh, energy equities. You know, we talked a moment ago about, you know, commodities and the price for those commodities. But I think energy security, we'd all agree, is, is a really, really important element. And um, that, that uh, underpins part of our, our bullish sentiment on, on energy equities. You did mention rising gas prices. We'll cover that in a few moments. And that, of course, ties into oil markets. And we're coming off an OPEC, OPEC Plus meeting from last week. We have another OPEC meeting set to take place in early June. I believe June 2nd is the date. But what are some takeaways, Jay, from this most recent meeting? And what is CIO's current price outlook for oil? Yeah, you're right, Dan. You know, OPEC Plus is is now meeting monthly. So uh, they met in in early May. Um, they agreed to uh, sort of continue the plan that they uh, proffered back in July of of 2021. What that led to is is the addition of about 400,000 barrels a day monthly um, to to global supplies. Uh, they agreed to do that again um, in early May for the June monthly period. Uh, I, I think the key thing you have to keep in mind there, and, and this isn't you know very well reported, um, you know members are, are definitely struggling to meet their quotas that add up to that 400,000 barrel per day uh, monthly increase. Um, we haven't seen them actually deliver on a full 400,000 barrels a day since since the month of of October, and I, I think when you look inside that this isn't anybody trying to hold back supply it's just some of these smaller countries are are very much struggling to uh, keep their their supply online given challenged infrastructure and and the like um, it highlights that you know so the the, the supply isn't unlimited um, and you know we really have you know limited amounts of, of supply of, of crude oil and you know it has to be managed I think very very carefully um, as as we see sort of globally, you know, notwithstanding, you know, here in the U.S. Um, our forecast is uh, we forecasted actually on Brent basis. That's the European benchmark for, for crude. And it's $115 sort of quarterly through early uh, the first quarter of, of 2023. Um, now, when we adjust that to make it into West Texas Intermediate, um, we've got a 
$4 discount for the first two quarters coming up here. So the June and September quarter, and that really accounts for the strategic petroleum reserve release that was made. So we're seeing a slightly larger discount of WTI to Brent so that we clear those barrels onto the water, essentially into the international market. But then we expect that to tighten up to only a $3 discount, which is a little more the historic discount um, by year end and into 2023 of only $3. And hence, as I mentioned uh, uh, a little while ago, we have a $112 US WTI estimate for year end. And and that's also our first quarter sort of end of March uh, forecast for, for crude. We mentioned inflation towards the top of the conversation. Inflation has been felt by U.S. consumers, especially at the gas pump. We do have the summer driving season coming up. What can consumers expect this year? Dan, I I would want to say higher prices. Um, you know, I, again, it takes us back to supply and demand. And you know, what we normally see in the summer driving season is higher demand. And what we've historically seen is, you know, a ramping up of, of refinery activity and uh, sort of a production of, you know, essentially gasoline and diesel for uh, for the summer driving season. Um, and given that we had, you know, very, very high prices, um, some refinery ma- uh, maintenance, and very low inventories for refined products that stem back to last year. Um, the the challenge really is we're going into the summer with you know low inventories for gasoline, diesel, and, and a lot of refined products. Um, we're seeing you know refineries ramping up, but obviously oil prices are high. Which you should think of it that's the input they refine oil to make gasoline and distillate fuel oil, diesel, jet fuel, etc. Um, so. You know, though I, I personally don't don't like it. Uh, obviously, as uh, any of us that have to refill our car, um, I, I would tell you my expectation is is higher fuel prices as we move into the summer driving season. I, I think one big element there is is demand. I, I think though all of us will, myself included, you know, complain about the price at the pump. All of us, after you know two years of lock, lockdown and a pandemic, you know, are very desirous of getting out, seeing family driving on our vacation, getting on a plane, going on vacation. Um, so I, I think there's not going to be uh, very much demand response uh, to these uh, higher prices, and, and, and that's going to sort of exacerbate that uh, that price indication. So I, I'd say higher prices is what consumers should expect for, for the summer driving season. Well, it's a very good point on pent-up demand. So, Jay, thank you for helping us to manage expectations for the summer driving season and for the transparency there. I do want to pivot a bit. Uh, The Global Chief Investment Office recently released a note, Investment Strategy Insights. Now, this is framed as a question, a renaissance of nuclear energy. So nuclear energy, Jay, it has been a controversial topic over the decades, though it does indeed serve a role. So how might this energy source, Jay, here in the U.S. specifically evolve over the next decade? And what might be some notable risks involved with nuclear? Look, I, I think nuclear has a very, very important place in both the, you know, global energy supply and, quite frankly, here in in the U.S. En- energy supply. You know, nuclear is a technology we use to generate electricity. It represents about twenty percent of of U.S. electricity supply. Um, you know, uh, a company is is currently building a new nuclear plant in the state of Georgia, um, but I, I'd say on average. 
average, and this is true in, in the U.S. and Europe, you know, nuclear tends to be a very, very expensive technology. And with things like wind and, and solar, though they aren't as predictable, they're more coincident technologies relative to nuclear, which is what we call dispatchable, meaning I can hit the button and I can make it generate electricity when I want to. Um, I, I, I think I think we're probably, that'll be the last nuclear plant built um, in the U.S. Uh, for probably the next five or, or so years. I think when we look around the world, what we're seeing, you know, sort of better prospects for new nuclear in the near term in places like China and India, uh, where it is cheaper. And the obvious question is, why is it cheaper? Um, in those places, you know, the companies that design the plants are the same companies that build the plants, so, so construct the plants. And obviously, you have lower labor costs. So uh, I think you're seeing some of that. But, you know, when I look to the future, which I think is really sort of underlying your, your question, you know, we've got advanced nuclear designs, what we call fourth generation designs, which also uh, include small modular nu nuclear plants. You know, these are being advanced in, in U.S. and Europe um, and, and do hold the promise of, of a lot lower cost nuclear supply. Uh, the challenge really is, you know, we're still working through, you know, design and development of these uh, technologies so they can be commercialized. And, and that's probably more in the, you know, sort of 2030 zip code as a, as a time frame. You know, what I want to point out to people is I think when you look around the world, um, you know, nuclear is a safe technology. As you point out, it's, it's a scary technology. So people get, you know, quite upset, appropriately quite upset when things go wrong. Um, but, but really, uh, I think this is proven time and again to be a, a safe technology. And with the lack of carbon emissions, I, I think the future is pretty exciting for nuclear. It's just we probably when I talk future, I'm talking sort of the next 10, 20 years. But as I sort of started, I, I really do think nuclear has an important role to play in, uh, in global energy supply, um, particularly given that it is, you know, quite predictable. You turn it on, turn it off. It's it's not a coincident technology and, um, you know, has limited carbon emissions even over over the life of the plant. So um, it's 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 pretty exciting outlook, but uh, a little bit longer, longer term. To your point, Jay, this topic has a lot of runway ahead of it. So perhaps something we can revisit in future conversations. Jay, I know we're nearing the end of the Q1 reporting season. So this is focusing in on the U.S. energy sector for a moment. How did the group fare relative to your expectations heading into the reporting? I think generally first quarter earnings were were quite good I'd, I'd say earnings and cash flow in first quarter were better than expectations I think the story we all went into sort of wondering about was you know what is the impact of inflation and um, we're definitely seeing even at the margin some acceleration in inflation or area impacts on on costs we saw a little bit of, of creep in, in capital spending expectations for the full year, almost primarily driven by, you know, inflation um, uh, and the costs of equipment and uh, what have you, consumables for for uh, exploration and, and production activities. Well, what I really felt good about, though, is, you know, the capital discipline, um, you know, remains in, in the U.S. energy industry. You know, the industry is growing 
production this year by about 5%, but they're being disciplined in their approach to that. You know, as we talked a moment ago, um, OPEC is raising supply. You know, we have, um, you know, the potential for an Iranian deal. It's feeling longer and longer, those odds, but um, we do have the potential for additional Iranian supply. You know, the Biden administration is having some discussions with Venezuela. So I, I think there is some questions about exactly how much supply is out there. So the idea that the U.S. producers are growing production but remaining disciplined while they watch how you know supply demand develops, I think is a quite positive thing, certainly relative to, to history. But I'd say you mix the capital discipline, you mix it with our expectation that you know earnings and cash flow are going to continue to beat expectations you know for the next quarter or two um, and I think uh, the first quarter earnings did a, a good job of, of supporting our constructive view on on energy equities you know looking forward thank you Jay for some takeaways from Q1 reporting so as we begin to close out and this ties into your latter point there uh, with respect to how CIO views the group positioning uh, you did release on May 5th your equity preference list update which is your recurring piece on the U.S. energy sector so can you take a few moments here to talk about how you're recommending that energy investors be positioned at this time? Yeah, Dan, we remain overweight energy for in the context of a diverse uh, energy or equity portfolio. Um, with why you'd say, and, and and really the answer is, you know, sort of, you know, the cyclical uh, sort of characteristics of of energy, and as well their sort of inflation sort of hedge that we we started this podcast talking about. Um, you know, within the energy space, we like exploration and production companies again because of some of the capital discipline I referenced a moment ago. I'd also say we, we like the refiners. Um, you know, as we talked about, we're going to see high gasoline uh, demand this summer. Um, you know, I'd, I'd argue, and I always think about this in, in uh, electricity as well, you know, go out and, and buy some of these refiners. It'll it'll make you feel a little better the next time you, you fill up your, your uh, fuel tank with gas, that at least you're getting the benefit of, of owning some of the refiners. You know, longer term, we'd be positioned around you know, sort of the uh, oil field services companies and, and some of the integrated oil companies. You know, look, I, I do think, and, and we didn't discuss this a lot, but, you know, I think we're in a period of, of elevated oil prices, um, largely because supply demand appear to be, you know, mismatched for, for an extended period of time. And if, if that is true, then, you know, we're going to have to start spending globally, you know, more money to make sure that there is, is adequate supply. And, and that's a benefit for you know, oil field service companies as, as well as the larger integrated oil companies. Um, you know, valuation, in our opinion, looks attractive on an absolute basis. I think when you look at that versus the broader market, uh, it continues to, to remain even more attractive. You know, the idea of commodity hedges, as we started this podcast you know, 20 or so minutes ago, um, you know, really highlights uh, sort of some of the underlying issues that are you know, leading us to be overweight uh, energy. And, and again, I'd say the last thing um, is just our expectation that earnings and cash flow are going to beat expectations. When I try and look at, at uh, 
sectors and stocks that I like and, and I expect to go higher, you know, it's either that, you know, valuation is attractive or uh, that earnings and cash flow are going to beat expectations. He, here in energy, uh, I, I expect both of those to be true. And, and, and that's why we've seen as, as powerful a rally as, as we've seen year to date. And I would argue that there's still more, more to go on that front. Jay, very productive conversation. You covered a lot of ground for our clients, our listeners in a relatively short span. Of course, there's a lot here we can follow up on. So looking forward to doing so with you in the months to come, though. Jay, great catching up with you as always. Thank you for dropping by top of the morning. Dan, thanks for having me. Really appreciate the discussion. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 